Welcome to Reading Aloud Live. My name is Reverend Campbell, and uh, we're going to be reading a little bit of the Satanic Witch today. This is part four of probably a part six series in order to get through this. We're halfway through, and we've already finished three, so math. <laughs> but uh, I think it's going to be a good one, because we're going to be covering some ground that's very interesting. So I'm going to sit here with my peppermint tea in my Satan me mug cozy up with a nice book about human psychology and witchcraft and uh, with a little Satan on the side for flavor have a good ass time with both of you in the chat <laughs> both of you how's it going Stephanie how are you my dear William thanks for joining us so early and Sean good to see you throughout the course of this if you have any questions or comments or you just want to chit chat with the other individuals watching live feel free to jump in on the chat and we'll try to have a little bit of back and forth and we'll try to have a little bit of fun. Really, the function of this is just a performance. It's a performance of reading and in between those performances are a little bit interaction with me in the chat room. So if you're watching this and wondering what the hell it is you're watching, <laughs> that's kind of it. It's really simple. Nothing to it. Um, for those of you, how's it going, Sparkling Shadows? Nadine, good to see you. I feel like it's been a while since I've seen you. Um, these are available as both this video series and in an audio podcast format. If you don't have time to watch it while it's live, you can always tune in after the fact. Go to reverendcampbell.com and look for Reading Aloud in the series list, and you'll see an RSS feed with just Reading Aloud episodes that you can use and load into your uh, mobile devices or wherever you listen to your podcasts. However, if you want to get every single one of the episodes that I've ever produced in a single podcast feed that's like 200-some-odd podcasts long, so it doesn't have everything in it, but it has the last 200 episodes, that I've produced, then you can just go to Apple Podcasts or Google Play and search Reverend Campbell or iHeartRadio or Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts, and you can hook up with that feed also. Totally up to you, or you can just turn it off and ignore me. Either way, it's going to be fun. Uh, it should feel like that, Christian. Thanks for joining us, man. M. Ashworth, how you doing? Uh, we're going to be covering your fur today. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see where that goes, shall we? Hold on, let me get my, my new glasses. <laughs> yeah, a diabolical study group. All right, here we go, people. We're just going to dive in, and after every section, I will uh, stop for, you know, a quick breather and interact with all of you. But again, what do you guys think about this book so far? Do you feel like it's gone the way you expected it to go? Are you figuring out things that you've never really thought of before? Is it opening your eyes? It, is hearing it, rather than reading it yourself, helping you comprehend the material a little bit more? Or pick up on ideas that maybe you hadn't picked up on before? Or are you just mocking me as I mispronounce words? <laughs> or stumble over my own reading? Either way, let me know. I'll enjoy it. Oh, yeah, here. We got this. <laughs> uh, definitely Nadine, always. All right, your fur. Your hair color and style must be consistent with your image. Dominant men generally respond to long hair, passive men to short hair. If you have long hair, putting it up will make you appear more dominant. If you have short hair, buy a, a fall when you wish to bewitch a dominant man. Dark-haired witches are more appealing to passive males than blondes, who are always considered to be softer. 
Many of the most famous sex symbols have been blonde at 12 o'clocks. The late Jane Mansfield was a perfect example, whose vast appeal lay in a deceptively blonde-haired baby face, such as one would expect on a 6 o'clock, resting on a slim-hipped, long-waisted, big-busted 12 o'clock body. In typing people, one cannot go by the face, only the physique. The shape of the face, however, should have much to do with the hairstyle and color one chooses. Hairstyle more than anything else, but clothing is the most effective means for a witch to safely modify her basic or apparent type. There are certain stereotypes with which every competent witch should familiarize herself. These will serve as a basis upon which to choose the proper hairstyle for the specific bewitchment she has in mind. The nature of a blonde is detected largely by the way the hair is worn, so don't think just becoming a blonde will do the trick. It all depends on what kind of blonde image you present. If your features are soft and your hair is flaxen, you will convey a virginal and innocent appearance, especially if your skin has a pinkish tint. If you are large, your flesh tone firm with a well-defined bone structure, and you have the same flaxen hair as the last girl, you can make like Brunhilde. If your hair is too coarse for the Valkyrie image, you'll be best in exotic roles like a jungle goddess. If your face is just ordinary, with pleasant, regular features, an all-out platinum shoulder-length wig with lots of contrasting makeup will turn you into a real blonde bombshell. All it takes in most cases is guts. A rather tousled dishwater blonde job, probably frosted, with a roundish face and the properly witchy eyes and mouth, will be just the thing to pose as a bored housewife looking for excitement, even if you're not married. Remember, if you can't present the image you want with your own hair, wigs are the thing to employ. First impressions are lasting ones, and your appearance is the biggest part of any first impression you will make. I want to stress that your image as a witch must be synonymous with enchantment, seduction, and fascination, which all adds up to glamour. You don't have to even consider going to bed with anyone you enchant. You are simply a purveyor of fantasy, fantasy in the mind of the person you bewitch. And if you can give a man a good fantasy, you will have succeeded in throwing your spell. One of the main complaints about wearing a wig is that you have to be careful that it doesn't get displaced when you're in the sack. I assume that most of the women who read this book want to bewitch. I'm not going to tell you how to make love or even advocate promiscuity, because any gal can become popular if she sleeps with every guy that finds her appealing. A fool and his money are soon popular, and a girl who feels she must go all the way to be popular, um, to be accepted, falls into the same category. Have sex with whomever you like, as often as you wish. But don't feel that you have to use sex indiscriminately to be a complete witch. Some of the most competent witches I know have one man and are perfectly satisfied with him, but use the folly of other men who can't accept the fact that such a relationship is possible. Getting back to your crowning glory, the average American girl has long been stereotyped as having brown hair and a name like Betty or Sue. The traditional girl next door has a tremendous appeal, and always will, so don't sell brown hair short. Brown has the advantage of being a good base for which to start. Styled in a soft manner, it will always give a feeling of assurance that some of the best men need from a woman. Piled high, brown hair will give you the most efficient look, because this is the color of human values. 
You will fit into social activities with the least trouble and attract the person who might be more antisocial around a blonde or red head. There are some men who can't stand blondes, and many who like redheads even less. Many men consider girls with black hair too exotic or tire of it easily. A little jet black hair goes a long way if a man looks at it as a novelty, and there are many cultures where there just isn't much else from which to choose. There are so many different shades of brown, ranging from molasses or maple to deep mahogany, that an infinite color variety is available to the brunette with various rinses and tints. The witch with black hair is the most frequent stereotype, and if you actually plan on advertising your craft, black hair is best. No matter what will be done to dispel the old depictions of witches that are thousands of years of prepaid publicity for the raven-haired witch, ask any child to describe a witch and TV shows notwithstanding, you most likely will be told that she has black hair. The semantic and religious angles are well established, so if you have black tresses and want to bewitch, bear this in mind. Did you ever see a good fairy in a storybook that didn't have blonde hair? Or a saint? Or a heroine? Not many, I'll wager. Yet invariably, the wicked woman, witch, femme fatale, vampire, head matron, dean of girls, or female spy has black hair. Of course, there's always Snow White. If your face is sweet and innocent with pale, translucent skin, and you have soft doe eyes, they can't be the least bit wicked. Then see what you can do with such an image. But keep in mind that Snow White kept company with some very strange men. Black-haired gals have an overwhelming appeal for masochistic males, exceeded only by redheads. Red-haired women are the infants terrible of the witchhood. If a girl has auburn hair, she can pass as a brunette, but still call herself a redhead if the situation warrants it. Likewise, a strawberry blonde can take credit for red hair if it will be to her advantage. But the witch with flaming red hair had better do something special, or her fiery looks will stand in her way. It is not easy to maintain the image that is required for the redhead. Consequently, many girls who are not natural redheads can't stick with it for any length of time once they have dyed their hair red. This is probably the only hair color that one must either be born into or be an excellent full-time actress to carry off. Because redheads are all supposed to be hot-tempered, this self-fulfilling prophecy sees to it that they are. A red-headed image is cut out for her, so there is no other role she can play. Redheads are natural witches because they have literally been forced into a totally constant type. Usually the shy, retiring redhead has been a freckle-faced carrot top since birth. These gals occasionally can't live up to the fiery redhead image and sometimes will tint their hair to tone down the red. On the other hand, I have seen instances where introverted girls just uh, got just the spunkiness they were lacking by dyeing their hair red. The main disadvantage of red hair is the fact that most men either love it or hate it. Nothing in between. The chance that you'll turn off the right man is more of a hazard than with other colors. But, fetishistically, red hair is high on the compulsion list, and he who goes for it will be your slave. Masochists adore redheads, especially if you're up around the top of the synthesizer clock. Many men believe that redheads are more highly sexed and passionate than other women. This assumption has proven detracting from the real qualities of many a redhead, whose suitor becomes disgruntled when he finds she is not some kind of sex-maddened, lust-ridden motel acrobat, 
but only a passionate, responsive woman. Appearance-wise, redheads cause more conjecture than any other, and as a cute seven o'clock with white skin and plenty of freckles can excel as a delectable, slatternly strumpet. If you are of an ethnic group that is predominated by black-haired people, don't make the mistake of thinking that these rules don't apply to you. The only reason many black people, orientals, latins, etc., don't artificially modify their hair color is because they feel it would be wrong to do so. Such lack of objectivity can also be seen in Scandinavians who have great pride in their blonde hair, but whose appearance might be more effective in many cases by darkening their hair. I feel sympathy for witches who are of black or Latin ancestry who would like to have red hair or blonde hair but feel they just can't. You can do anything you damn please with your appearance, if by doing so it will create an image that will lead to greater powers of enchantment. Invariably, someone along the path of, uh, somewhere along the path of sorcery, you'll find yourself selling out to someone's idea of what you should look like. If your dear old granny liked your soft brown hair, you want to be a blonde, you don't dare bleach your hair or you'll be copping out on granny. If your hair is red and like a Brillo pad, and everyone thinks you're a great pal of an Irish gal, just like little orphan Annie, you might want to clap a nice sleek black wig over that fine heritage, but you'll be a cop-out to all the folks you've known at the Knights of Columbus dance. If you're black, and you stop traffic with your cat-like movement, and you look even more exotic with blonde hair, do it! Pride in what you are doesn't mean you have to squelch your female vanity. In recent years, Japan has become loaded with sexy blonde witches who simply decided they liked blonde hair. Their ancestors might be horrified, but I don't think so. Tinting, bleaching, and otherwise modifying hair color is nothing new. It was done in ancient Egypt, Babylonia, India, China, Persia, etc., and many tribes in Africa and South Pacific have practiced it. Dyeing and bleaching of the hair was also practiced by many Indian tribes in Central and South America and by natives of New Zealand and Australia. Norsemen dyed their blonde hair black, put on bearskins, and went forth as berserkers or the original werewolves. So no matter what you do with your hair, you're not making any new modifications, historically speaking. An unpardonable sin in the makeup of a witch is a mania for every hair being in place. No man is going to think you're anything other than untouchable if you look the part, and there is no surer method of saying, hands off, than to look like your hair is stamped out of molded plastic. Most hairdressers will agree that a few hairs straying in the right manner can add rather than detract from an attractive coiffure. If you have known enough men, you'll be aware of the preoccupation many have for mussing a woman's hair. The idea is that it looks like she has been making love, and men hate chaste women. Unless, of course, it's their mother, daughter, sister, or wife. Anything that makes a woman look like a sh little shopworn will turn a man on, so must that hair accordingly. This means that your hair must be styled, though, to really be effective when slightly disarrayed. If you go about with straggly locks, it will look as though you don't give a damn. Whereas, if, you're, if it looks like you're a lady who cares about her appearance, but your coiffure is a little messed, that's a different story. In the previous chapter on fetish finding, you'll recall my mention of long hair. Exceedingly long tresses represent one of the most common encountered fetishes, so every well-stocked witch should have a long hairpiece in her bag of tricks. 
There's one to fall for in every roomful, and he won't be hard to spot, for his eyes will show you you've hit the jackpot with your Lady Godiva mane. And yes, there are some guys who like hair so short on a woman that you'd wonder why they'd even bother. Usually these types would be better off with a nice male roommate, but would punch anybody's nose that dared suggest such a thing. If you need to keep such a man enchanted, maintaining a GI haircut isn't as bad as it used to be, thanks to the magic of wigs. What do you guys think about hair? I think it's interesting because you do have types, right? Like, I definitely fall into that long hair uh, trap, <laughs> definitely. Um, I like darker hair. I love me some reds, browns, blacks. And I'm actually not as interested in very short hair. I don't mind like a bob or shorter hair, but like the close-cropped pregnant Rosemary's Baby look, the Vidal Sassoon cut that she had. I fall in line with Guy on that one, unfortunately. Though I would be more delicate in my response than he was to her. Uh, let's see what you guys are saying here. Hi, uh, Stephanie. Yay for red hair. Natural redhead with green hair. Interesting. See, this is something that I don't know was as prevalent when this was written, but it was certainly prevalent when I was coming through grade school, high school and stuff, um, and a little bit in college as well, where girls would go out of their way to have crazy colored hairs or mixtures of hair. Nowadays, you have pop stars who dye their hair mixed colors, whether it's black on top, green on bottom in some cases, or pink and white, or, you know, there's just a, just a total variety. And I think what the doctor mentions in this needs to be remembered in all cases. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to go out there. If for no other reason, it makes you feel more confident as an individual witch, because ultimately confidence is going to lead to your successes every single time. Feeling good about what you look like is more important than what any other individual may think. Unless, of course, you're bending your looks in order to enchant. Then, of course, you got to go with what they're looking for. Um, funky hair. <laughs> always do it for you. Probably an ECI thing. Maybe, yeah. Uh, I don't mind like an oddball color, like a green or like a, a fuchsia. You know, like a super bright color as long as the individual wearing it pulls it off with confidence, because I've run into far too many who have sort of done like the Anna Green Gables thing where they, they dye their hair and it ends up this weird green, like dark green, and they, it looks a little too Halloween and not lifestyle. You know what I mean? A little odd. But then again, we're talking about hair. What about those women who just shave it off? I have seen some amazingly beautiful women who can pull off no hair on their head at all. Like, amazing. Or like straight up old school 70s punk rock mohawks with tight skin on the sides and just a massive fan going up. Wildly attracted to that stuff. Don't even know why. It just hits the right buttons. Again, probably an ECI thing like you had mentioned, Christian. Um, but yeah, as Stephanie says, it goes completely, it must be the attitude. That, that has everything to do with it. All right, what do we have next? We're going to go into your undercoat. <laughs> underarm hair. I actually don't mind underarm hair. Am I the only one? Like, I don't look for it. You know, like, I need someone to have it. 
but I don't mind it. It's not like a deal breaker to me. What's more of a deal breaker than having underarm hair is having prickly underarms because I like to explore the female form with my mouth and my tongue and nothing turns me off more than stubbly legs, stubbly vagina, or stubbly armpits. And no, I don't go licking armpits, but if you're just in the heat of passion and you're you know moving around the breast or, or down the arm or something, you're probably going to run into it in some way, if not by your hand, your mouth, or something. I don't know where you put your junk, maybe that too. So, you know, maybe uh, if you're going to own it, grow it out. If you're not, cut it off. Please stay up to, especially if you know you're going to be in a situation where there's going to be some touching or kissing or caressing of some sort. Come on. I mean, the same goes for guys. I keep my boys trimmed up. <laughs> I just expect the same on the other side. All right. I'm telling you, man. Brad, you're absolutely right. Good to see you, by the way. Uh, official Bogues. Word. Thanks for joining us, man. BNK Melly. Thanks for joining. Uh, anyone else that I'm missing? Sorry if I have missed you. Dennis, good to see you, man. All right, Robert. Hey, what's up, man? Let's do your undercoat, huh? Let's not do your undercoat. Let's talk about your undercoat. Your undercoat. In a society, underarm hair is a taboo that few other cultures share. In many countries, the absence of underarm adornment is considered decidedly unwomanly. The obsession Americans have about underarm hygiene is considered ridiculous by the majority of the world's peoples. The main reason such a taboo exists in the U.S. is because the armpit has never been considered an erogenous zone. Like the nape of the neck in Oriental cultures, the armpits hold a high position in European taste. It is easy to understand why when one considers that the hollow under the arm is a cleft analogous only to one other on the body in appearance, and like the crevice between the legs, it is normally kept closed and is covered with hair. Many old tales describe how the depth of a woman's sexual part may be measured by the size of her armpit. The whole idea seems so preposterous to most researchers that no one is bothered to explore the armpit for any degree of sexual significance. The men who get excited over a hairy armpit are usually not impressed by the naturalness of it, but rather because of its nastiness. For every man who likes his woman's skin smooth and hairless, there are always those who like them just a little bit hirsut. Any violation of a taboo is sexually appealing to most men. Don't expect to hear the lowdown from men concerning their secret likes. Most will never tell. You just have to find out for yourself if you don't believe that what I will tell you. Most French, Italian, Spanish, and Greek men like a profuseness of underarm hair, and the bigger the forest, the better. A special item it is, that has been produced in Japan for many years and is listed in early catalogs of sexual implements and aids as night flower is nothing more than a patch of hair designed to cover the pubic area. Obviously, where there is an incidence of sparseness of pubic hair, a toupee such as this can add a great deal of erotic stimulation. <laughs> On the other hand, where pubic hair is usually seen, the shaving of the area is considered the height of enticement. How much or how little underarm or pubic hair depends on the situation or environment in which, you enchant, in which your enchantment is to take place. Underarm hair need not be like a bramble bush, but a little five o'clock shadow will never hurt witchery-wise. 
Your decision in such matters requires a thorough knowledge of the law of the forbidden as it applies to your culture. Pubic hair or lack of same can be a delicate decision to make. Keeping your pubes shaved is a real job, and if you miss a few days, the itching can drive you nuts. There are many men, though, who are tremendously excited by hairless sexual equipage. The greatest advantage of a lack of pubic hair is manifested when there is no covering whatsoever over the area, as in case of nude models, etc. Under normal circumstances, however, a well-groomed foliage can be used to great advantage. Several years ago, I attended an annual affair in San Francisco, which is held in a beautiful grove and is dedicated in the pursuit of the photographic arts. Displays of the work of numerous photographers abound, and one of the highlights of the day is a photo session with live pretty girls in swimsuits for models. I might add that this is the traditional contest where Miss San Francisco is chosen, who subsequently has a chance for Miss California and, hopefully, Miss America. I was a police photographer at the time and had a couple of human interests type photos on exhib uh, exhibit and wasn't the least bit interested in wasting my time taking pictures of pretty girls. But because there was all this commotion over by the stage where the girls were lining up for the preliminary judging, I forced myself to take an objective interest. The contestants were radiantly lovely and Bert Parks would have loved each one. Their new swimsuits, generously donated by warm-hearted merchants, accentuated their youthful charms, and photographers of all shapes and sizes were clustered at the rim of the outdoor stage, their shutters clicking frantically. I noticed one bountiful lass was getting more attention than the rest, so I sidled over to examine her more thoroughly. She was a delightful creature, with honey-blonde hair and had on a one-piece black job that contrasted strikingly with her peach-and-cream skin. Oh yes, and a few wisps of darker honey-blonde pubic hair sprouting out of each side of the V between her thighs. The poor girl hadn't shaved enough and didn't think it showed, but all those nice men with their cameras didn't mind. In fact, I don't think a single one wanted to spoil her day by telling her which is quite chivalrous in this day and age. The girl with the most popular foliage in the park didn't win a thing except the undivided attention of many males and a full charge of witch power. I've since known that pubic hair, like all other aspects of the law of the forbidden, is always effective when it's not supposed to be seen. Think about that next time you get out the razor or hair remover the night before you go to the lake or beach or the afternoon prior to the costume party you'll be at attending as a stripper or can-can dancer. Right, we're about to dive into the Law of the Forbidden. I need to refresh my palate before we get into that one, because that's a good one. Um, I gotta tell you, Sneaking a little bit of pubic hair out from a swimsuit is really fucking a turn on. And I don't, I wonder, how about, can I ask uh, the gentlemen that are of my, uh, below my generation? So, I don't know, I'm Gen X, so millennials, Gen Y, whatever there is under that, I don't know. Do you even appreciate pubic hair at all? Or... Are you all like, hey, make it Barbie doll-like? I don't want anything. I'm curious. And I know it's going to differ from person to person. But there's always like an overtone. I feel like um, 
the millennial generation is more shaved than my generation was. And I feel like my generation made a huge deal about starting the phenomenon. So I don't know. Do you guys think it applies to generations? Do you think our cultural influence influences the individual more than the law of the forbidden might? Hey, if it is, man, I'm down for it. Give me some 70 styles any day of the week. Let it, let it, let it go. Let it grow. Uh, we're going to do a little off a bit now. I do like that idea. I don't like the idea of you looking at youngins, Brad, because <laughs> I know how old you are. <laughs> you dirty old man. Right, random name. I totally agree. And nice name. Wes, not too shabby. I don't mind a little tame forest. All right. Ladies, you've got a consensus. The law of the forbidden. The reason there has always been a fascination for witchcraft and sorcery is because it is cons... I'm going to start that over. I can't speak. The Law of the Forbidden. The reason there has always been a fascination for witchcraft and sorcery is because it has consistently been considered taboo. Your first duty as a witch is to your appearance. Men are all voyeurs, and most of what they are attracted to is based on what they see. What they see in you as a witch must be fascinating, and nothing is so fascinating as that which is not meant to be seen. Have you ever noticed how people will all jump out of their cars when there is a bad auto accident and stand around and gawk at the victims? Why? It's not just because they're sadistic or getting their bloodlust out of their system or even because they wish to be shocked. It is usually out of curiosity and why this curiosity for something which might give them nightmares or make more careful drivers of them. Simply because something is happening that is out of context with their everyday lives, something that is for real, but not something they can pay a few bucks to see whenever they want. In short, something is happening that shouldn't. An event is transpiring that is alien to the way a straight and proper highway scene should look. You wouldn't like to be lying on the pavement in pain with everyone looking at you. You therefore are subconsciously embarrassed for the injured persons. But don't think about them in that respect, nor analyze just why you stare at all. Let's move on to another scene, because there's nothing erotically stimulating to most people about the one we've just discussed, even though it is still a direct manifestation of the Law of the Forbidden. The scene is a night spot that features topless dancers. The tables in front of the low stage are filled with singles and couples, watching the bare-bosomed dancers spasmodically jerking to music, which is far too loud to talk over. The decor is garish, the lights not particularly dim, and the bar full of people who aren't able to get down closer or don't want to. Among the people at the bar are seated a man and his pretty young wife, who is perched on her bar stool in a manner that reveals more of her legs than it appears she is aware. She's not wearing a miniskirt, but a dress that normally comes about three inches above her knees. Actually, quite conservative by today's standards. Many other women who are present are wearing mini and micro skirts, but nobody's noticing them. The girl at the bar is wearing a wedding band, so it is obvious she's married. Her shapely legs are encased in common, garden variety, beige-toned nylons, with regular tops held up by a plain white garter belt. 
She's wearing classic black three-inch spike heels in a room full of fashionable square-heeled clod hoppers. Even the topless dancers are wearing the Frankenstein look in footwear as they shake their pendulous globules and thrust their vulvas, which are covered only by a tiny strip of scotch tape. The young lady at the bar has her own audience, though as several bored men who have been carefully nursing their drinks are furtively looking in her direction. What do they see that is so shocking? What kind of lewd performance draws their attention away from the flailing hoofers on the stage? What makes them sneakily glance over their shoulders in the direction of the bar while their wives and dates who drag them here are attentively picking up some pointers, or so they think, on titillation from the girls on stage? I'll tell you what those dirty-minded little boys see. They see up a nice lady's dress. They say a real woman. Her face is pretty and proper, but provocative, and her hair is so neatly styled. Her dress is ridden up under her arm, so the backs of her bare thighs are above her stocking tops, are in direct contact with her bar stool. She holds her purse in her lap, which she is also covered by her dress, so it appears as though she thinks her legs are properly covered. Actually, one can follow, if his eyes are good, one of her garter straps far enough to see it dimly disappear beneath what surely must be her panties. Just imagine! Their little boy minds snap into awareness, and they are back in their bedrooms when they are 13 years old. You can see all the way up to her underpants. Suddenly, the 86-proof voice of the MC jars them back to reality. Their evocation is over. Candy Bumpstead is about to present her twin 44 magnums and get a load of those nipples. Now, let's break down the formula, the results of which we just witnessed. First of all, the gal at the bar was out of context with the rest of the entertainment. She wasn't part of the show. She was a married woman, or at least with someone else, so therefore she was available to at least the man she was with and didn't look chaste, and everyone who oogled her felt as though she was getting something, even if it was just a good look that belonged to someone else. That's forbidden fruit number one. She wasn't wearing a skirt that was intended to reveal so much leg. Forbidden fruit number two. She was wearing stockings with tops, which skirts are supposed to cover. Forbidden fruit number three. She was revealing her underwear. Forbidden fruit number four. Which was regulation white in color and not something showy that any girl might think it cute to display. Forbidden fruit number five. Therefore convincing the viewers that it was accidental rather than intentional exposure. Forbidden fruit number six. The men who furtively stared should have been watching the action on stage, not staring at the other side of the room as it's considered rude and impolite to turn around in any theater and look at others while the performance is in progress. Forbidden fruit number seven. Combine all these factors with the compulsive power of each man's ECI, erotic crystallization inertia, which fetishistically saw it that the woman at the bar should steal the show from the dancers on stage. Add the emotional release device of the liquor, however slight the effect, or water down the drinks, and you have nine good reasons why that girl seated at the bar with her husband was the most potent witch in the place. Through her employment, consciously or otherwise, of the law of the forbidden, 
She stole the show. Remember, nothing is so fascinating as that which is not meant to be seen. When it comes to bewitching them, all men are nasty little boys at heart. When the first sexual feelings or subsequent experimentation occurred in a man's life, he was acting in the capacity of a nasty little boy in 99% of all cases, and I don't care who might disagree. We can talk to a horse about the beauties of love and the majesty of sexual fulfillment, and I agree these things can come to pass in a man's life. But when a boy becomes a man, it is accompanied by lewd thoughts. This is just as sure and true as the idyllic romance which always blows as a gentle and tender zephyr while a girl becomes a woman. A boy's sexual awakening is pur prurient, levicious, and lusty, and his romantic emergence is a bittersweet dawning, and he is randy with the one and anguished with the other, and a complete witch will know how vast a difference exists between the two. This is why you must appeal to the lust within a man with unholy devices. He may lie and say he has no thoughts of secret vices or furtive pleasures, and he, will he may remove himself to mon uh, monkeries to beat his lusts asunder, but they will be there. They will always be there, and caging them will make them roar all the louder. <laughs> it's true. It's all true. <laughs> Hi, Mr. Ferdinander. Good to see you, man. Man, the law of forbidden is so goddamn true in every occasion. In every occasion. I don't know. Um, I, I say that. I know for guys it's always true. Um, at least in my anecdotal experience. What about girls? Because <laughs> I don't think it's the same. Let's just say I've got... 1970s runner shorts on. Maybe I forgot my jock strap because in the 1970s they wore jock straps. And I'm running. And a nut <laughs> dips out of my short, short running shorts. Because it's 1970s and that's how they rolled. Would the peeping out of a testicle be the same to a woman as the peeping out of labia be to a man? I can't believe that it would. I cannot. I cannot imagine the woman that would be like, oh, brain. <laughs> I saw brain. <laughs> I can't see it. I, let me know, tell me I'm wrong. I need to know if there's one of you out there. But my entire life has, if there's one thing, one truth that is true in all of my human experience, is that women do not want to see your average dude's balls or cock. Like, it's just not, unless they're, like, romantically interested in them, like, just a random one? No. No. And it's proven by all the flashers who are trying. They're just desperately trying to be that one penthouse story case where they whip it out and the girl's like, Ooh, I do declare I got the vapors. Come to me, daddy. It don't happen. It's never happened. Oh, man. So funny. Um, <laughs> Nadine. No. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. All right. Let's see. 
<laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Guys are sending dick pics and no girl wants to see him. Ever. Not one. <sighs> Maybe there's one. I don't know. Okay, let's let's move on here. <laughs> you need to wash your eyes. <laughs> I'm just imagining, like, reverse the case of the uh, the um, the bikini contest where it's dudes and you've got like bing, 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 sticking out from the dudes like banana hammock. <laughs> no way is a girl just like, ooh, look at those pubes. Mm. <laughs> There's a streak of gray. Oh. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm sorry. I'm, I'll move on again. All men are little boys inside. <laughs> I just find that so funny. Oh, hold on. I've got... No, no, no. We're not done yet. <clears throat> I don't know if it's just because of the garment. However, I personally have used to success the law of the forbidden with my kilt. Huh? I don't know if it's just because it's a kilt, but ladies always always will look up a man's kilt if given the proper angle and even if they can't get to the nasty bits they like seeing as far as they can in every case maybe it's just the kilt but every time i catch girls taking a peek every time i didn't consider that maybe it's just the garment if i had running shorts on no way if I'm wearing my kilt, fuck yeah. Every time. All right. Yeah, exactly. My eyes are up here, baby. Okay, here we go. Secrets of indecent exposure. In learning how to properly employ the law of the forbidden, you must realize that you, as a woman, are ideally suited for such tactics. A man is limited by his clothing styles, and even if he were able, he would find that women are not the voyeurs he is. Primarily because of the woman's romantic approach to sex versus a man's role as a spectator. If a man exposes himself by unzipping his trousers from behind a bush or in a doorway or subway, he has silently proclaimed himself an exposer, a pervert, a dirty old man. He will most certainly be arrested if he keeps it up long enough and be considered a social problem. If the same man wishes to remove all his clothing as a form of protest, as we see happening in radical groups, he might get away with it, but he must still carry the stigma of the misfit, the social freak. He can always join a nudist camp, but if sexual aims are his purpose, he'd never forget that idea as he would be expelled at the first sign of an erection. If there is a free beach nearby, he can cavort nude, but as in the case of social protest nudism and nudist camps, he must go all the way, thereby labeling himself a rebel. The woman has no such problems, as her potential avenues of indecent exposure are generally those that will allow her to remain a part of established society. A smart witch need never lack for suitable opportunities to expose herself. Simply exposing oneself is not enough, though. In order to compel and fascinate, you must employ the law of the forbidden. The biggest hurdle to overcome in applying this principle is the fear of embarrassment. There are two ways to do this, each depending on your personality type. 
If you are thick-skinned and not naturally timid, you're probably an ex exhibitionist anyway, so the constant knowledge of what your newfound tricks are causing in the minds of your quarries should give you the necessary confidence you need to overcome the fear of embarrassment. If you are shy and bashful by nature, the best way to cope with this fear of embarrassment is not to even try. You'll notice I stress the fear of embarrassment rather than embarrassment itself. This is because the idea is not to avoid embarrassment, but to entertain it. If this sounds crazy, consider the very mechanism of embarrassment and you will be able to see its virtue. When you are embarrassed, you blush. The blood vessels of the face and neck dilate to let in more blood, in a manner similar to the chameleon who changes color when threatened so that he can match his surroundings and not be seen. This is our natural throwback to protective coloration. You've probably never realized the significance of this form of camouflage when you've made the comment when, uh, when telling of an embarrassing situation. I could have crawled into a hole, or I felt like crawling into the woodwork. To hide one's face in shame is an expression that bears eloquent witness to the natural protective coloration that blushing attempts to supply. Now, the kind of situation that is engendered when we are embarrassed and subsequently blush is the very factor that will produce a total reversal of the supercharging of adrenaline that at times of shock and emotional stress will cause our faces to become whiter. The more we need to defend ourselves, the whiter we get. The more our need to run away or are confronted with a feeling of helplessness, the redder we get. Whether a situation will cause an aggressive or defensive reaction, whitening of the face, on or a retreating and submissive reaction, blushing, depends on whether the situation calls for fighting or hiding. Animals that are fighters depend on their claws and fangs for survival. Animals who are hiders depend on being able to crawl into a hole or climb up a tree. In setting up contrived situations of embarrassment, you are not fighting nature. You are cleverly employing what normally might be naturally unpleasant reactions toward a positive end. In the practice of ceremonial magic and one of its principal ingredients, telepathic communication, one must either get his adrenaline up in order to send or his submissive perfective, uh, perfected in order to receive. Call it what you like. That's the way it works. When you place yourself in an embarrassing situation, you become submissive to your surroundings or else you wouldn't blush. Your very aura becomes one of awareness that Everyone is looking at you, directing their interests toward you, and in the case of a sexually stimulating situation, directing their energy towards you. You then become the magnet, the flame, the psychic receptacle of all your viewers' lust energy. The fact that you are forcing an accelerating and intense form of self-conscious submissiveness will produce what hours of meditation would fail to do insofar as your powers of magnetic attraction are concerned. Through your use of the law of forbidden, you have visually presented an image that will artificially do your projecting for you. Your appearance will serve as the outgoing force that will snare your quarry as an angler throws his bait. The self-consciousness of your embarrassment will reel in your line. We find the same phenomenon occurs in a negative fashion when the typical victim walks down the street. Victims, whether they are those of rapists or swindlers, often attracted their attention, not because they're subconsciously wanting to be attacked, as is often assumed, but because of their intense fear of attack, which makes them ideal receptors. 
The man who walks down the dark street with a gun in his pocket just hoping some strong-armed man will try to mug him will probably never meet one, nor will the gal with the black belt of judo. Contrary to the usual assumption that when you look for trouble you find it, these types aren't looking so much as they are defensively prepared. The drunk who is just placidly boozing up enough to not give a damn, the sweet little old lady strolling through the park, the naive nature lover exploring in the most likely murder spots are sometimes attacked, but the odds are with them that they'll keep on sauntering along without harm. It's the girl who is scared, who throws out the scent of fear, who wants to hide, to run, to crawl into a hole that has been raised on stories of men attacking her or her who purposely go out of her way to get scared or find kicks while thrilling at her own daring. These are the victims. A great lesson can be learned from this sort of phenomenon, and the same basic attractive force can be utilized to your advantage and with your control through the use of feminine sexual magnetism as a result of embarrassment. Now, let's define the difference between the type of embarrassment that you will employ from that which you will discard, even though any kind of embarrassment will make you feel like you're at the mercy of others. Ideas and thoughts go from our brain to various parts of our bodies via the Atom atomic autonomic nervous system. The kind of embarrassments you should conjure up should be those which directly relate to sexual stimulation in your viewer. If you're working and making a gross error in your bookkeeping that is discovered just after you have been bragging about what a great office manager you are, you will go around with a red face for the rest of the day but it's highly unlikely you'll find any guy in the office that can identify your erroneous calculations with his sexual urge, unless he's turned on by strings of digits. The fact that you're embarrassed is manifested in your crimson face and perhaps a knot in your stomach and hotness in your ears. Your autonomic nervous system has not sent your embarrassment manifestations to erogenous zones of your body because there's nothing of a sexual nature that you need of. Concerned. Supposing, though, the elastic broke and your panties fell down around your ankles, a popular subject for pinup pictures. Or when you discovered that the roof of your building wasn't so secluded as you thought when you opened your eyes after momentarily dozing off over the paperback you were reading to see the two men who had come up to fix the TV antenna standing ten feet away and obviously not paying attention to their work. Or when you hung one on at the office party and did a strip number that you don't quite remember, but nobody will let you forget. You can't imagine how you could have ever done that sort of thing, but every time you see certain men who are present and think of how much of you they had seen, well... The three cases of embarrassment I just mentioned had one thing in common. They involved sexual elements that present pleasure to those who viewed them. No one gets any erotic pleasure out of seeing a person become ill in a restaurant, though the situation can be most embarrassing to the person with the bellyache. Conversely, the pretty girl whose skirt is blown up by a gust of wind delights all men present, and the redder her face gets, the more pleasure she gives. A woman who realizes the implications of a pleasingly embarrassing situation will still be just as embarrassed, but her autonomic nervous system, that which telegraphs from the brain to various parts of the body, will cause her to respond in her erogenous zones. When you know you're exciting a man, you too can feel a sexual response in the knowledge of what you are doing. 
Anything you can do to provoke an embarrassment, submission, of a sexually provocative nature will cause you to throw off the very scent that can cause men and animals to get horny. Don't worry, as no one will attack you in a public place or at a polite gathering, but the subconscious impulses will still be there. How do you purposely provoke embarrassment? It's easy. Just do something you wouldn't feel right doing. Just make sure it is something that would give sexual stimulation to someone else. If you have ten dresses and can't make up your mind which one to wear, choose the one that's a little too short or too tight, in some way revealing, so that you will be self-conscious while you are wearing it. You say you feel cheap? Good! Remember, cheap is just another term for available, and every successful witch knows that available she is. But not to just anybody, and she seldom comes cheap. Sorry about the stuttering, guys. That word caught me off guard. <laughs> completely. Completely. Um, I, and I, I do have to say, uh, this is uh, absolutely fucking true. <laughs> absolutely true. I love that right after I'm making fun of the guys, we talk about the guys in the actual uh, essay itself. One thing I really love about this, um, this uh, book, collection, novel, I don't book what i love about it is that he shares life stories and anecdotal stories as he's delivering the knowledge it would be easy just to say x and y will do z and w you know i mean like there's 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 very boring ways of doing it this makes it very interesting and fun to consume as a reader you know it's good stuff uh, okay, so what are we seeing here? Okay. <laughs> Borat, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> what did he say? It was like, um, check check my my back vagina or something, my my rear pussy or something. <laughs> the guy's like checks his ass. He's like, ooh, moist. <laughs> Gross. All right, the next uh, we're at the end of chapter four. We're at the beginning of chapter five. This is going to deal with fashion, the witch's greatest friend, the witch fashion's worst enemy. We are moving along. All right, so what do you guys think? Have you heard anything that is confusing that you disagree with? Uh, here's something that made me pause as I was reading it. And this is something that if you do not practice satanic greater magic, may be strange to you. He references, in the practice of ceremonial magic and one of its principal ingredients, telepathic communication, one must either get his adrenaline up in order to send or his submissiveness perfected in order to receive. So one of uh, the, 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 the definition of uh, magic consists in part of the idea that through satanic magic you are generating adrenal energy that you are directing then toward your target now in the context of the satanic bible which i've already you know done these readings of and you can go back and find those videos or those audio files uh, on my website or on my youtube channel um, you will probably remember that he specifically mentions adrenal energy in the context of lesser magic 
which is this entire volume. But in that passage, he specifically says ceremonial or greater magic using telepathic communication in the context of generating those adrenal energies or opening yourself up to receive them. So I think he is less specifically speaking to the idea of... Did you hear what I said? I was sending telepathic thoughts. He's not saying that, in my opinion. He is talking about generating those adrenal energies through passion, sexual passion, within the context of what we just read in the Law of the Forbidden. Um, that energy, that, that, that drive that you generate, that you are then pushing out to whomever your target is, will then influence them and bring it back to you. Whatever it is that you are trying to get them to do. That's the context that I understood. Let me know if you guys... Uh, took it differently, or if you interpreted it differently. Because this is what I think is so fascinating when discussing satanic magic. And this is why I think it's so interesting when people just outright throw it away um, when, you know, engaging in the idea of Satanism. It, it, satanic magic is a whole unto itself. It's broken up into two categories, lesser and greater, but satanic magic is itself. In my opinion, you cannot be a Satanist without practicing satanic magic. That doesn't mean you have to perform rituals, but it does mean you have to engage in lesser magic. That's the whole point of commanding the world around you. Becoming a, a successful individual is you manifesting your will. You do that through applied psychology, through talent, through earned um, uh, uh, mastery in your profession. So, uh, yeah. Let me know what you guys think. Do you think he was uh, talking about literal telecommunication? Like, uh, not phone, <laughs> telepathic communication. Um, or do you think he was meaning just that desire? Let me know in the chat. Okay, let's move on to fashion, chapter five. Gotta get my mustache out of the way. All right. <clears throat> but I do this in a terrible accent the whole time. Five. Fashion. The witch's greatest friend. The witch. Fashion's worst enemy. Women always consider what is out of fashion at the moment as being uncomfortable or ugly. For example, the biggest objection to wearing nylons is the discomfort when compared to pantyhose. When any new change in clothing styles comes about, the old style is automatically branded as being uncomfortable, and women wonder how they could ever have worn such torturous garments. Pantyhose are nothing more than glorified trousers. When men had to wear corsets, uh, when women had to wear corsets, pantaloons, and numerous petticoats, they wouldn't have felt right without them. Corsets gave their support, that meant security, and only the eccentric and the poor were either unwilling or unable to attire themselves in the sort of accoutrement that made a woman feel like a woman. Later on, when emancipation came from the laces and stays and heavy bloomers, the ladies felt free with their shirt waists and chemises, and only wore merry windows beneath their step-ins. Silk stockings were the rage, and what a relief they were from those heavy cotton and lissle things. In fact, some wild young things were even dispensed with long suspenders that held up their hose and rolled their stockings over elastic bands. 
They didn't consider that it might cut off the circulation in their legs, only the feeling of freedom it gave them. When rubber girdles appeared, women rejoiced that they could have the support without the encumbrance of a corset. A garter belts and brief were very daring when respectable women were wearing undies with at least an inch of leg attached over their elasticized cocoons. Whether you wore your stockings rolled or suspended, you had to make sure your seams were straight. And then the gal that got the stairs as being a trifle sleazy was the one with the crooked seams. Women were women, and damn well knew it, and rejoiced that they didn't wear trousers like the poor men. As a woman, you had the privilege of wearing a dress with a minimum of undergarments by the time the Second World War started, and the bra made a sweeter girl out of you and gave your breasts the healthy support they needed at the same time. Not too many years earlier, your bosom had to flop around because no self-respecting flapper wore anything under the top of her dress, with the exception, perhaps, of a thin chemise. What a wonderful thing the bra was when its healthful respite from all the scary articles you read telling how you were breaking down the tissue in your breasts by going without support. Now the granddaughters of those girls are equally convinced that going braless is the only natural and healthy thing to do. When women started working in war industries, they couldn't wear their feminine frills, and no one could be expected to keep her seams straight while riveting on a ship's bulkhead. So as women became substitute men, slacks took over. From the women's role during the war manpower shortage, the transition to trousers for women easily took place. A new garment in every woman's wardrobe has come into its own. Men were no longer poor fools who had to be all bound up in those cumbersome trousers with Scotsmen and Greek soldiers, the only lucky fellows who could let it all hang out. The outlook changed insofar as trousers were concerned, and women were wearing them, not out of necessity, but out of choice. Capris were comfortable. Besides, you didn't have to worry that some awful man would look up your dress while you gave the dog a bath, and you were free to climb all the trees you wanted to. But something was lost in the bargain. The baby had gone down the drain with the bathwater. The opportunities recognition, and respect that was becoming possible for women with more to offer than their biological fixtures was truly admirable change. Unfortunately, it couldn't stop at physique and social emancipation. The trappings of defeminization had to creep forth in subtle, insidious ways that would be guaranteed to convince women that they were doing the right thing. New standards of non-beauty were formulated by those women who couldn't measure up to old standards, or else men who hated women because of what might be called vagina envy. These ugly women and their vaginalist men didn't need any secret conspiracy. The burning bitterness seething inside them was enough. Don't confuse these purveyors of asexualization with the homosexual who loves the imagery of the archetypes of his own sexy seeks. The butch lesbian, who would rather be a man, tries her damnedest to look like a man and goes for the most femme types of girls. A femme lesbian is attracted to another dominant lesbian who knows why she often flavors mannish styles. A homosexual man likes other men and only wants to see women in unwomanly clothes if... He is unsuccessful in his homophile encounters. The transsexuals and transvestites, bless them, come close, closer to anyone else to a complete recognition of the demonic element within them. These people who, because they truly admire and recognize the sensual qualities of the opposite sex, would do nothing to discourage whatever trappings add to the difference. 
This is why transvestites and transsexuals often are said to make better women than women. They employ all the devices of overcompensation and frequently come out actually looking more convincing. But then, not everyone with a desire to change his sex can be a Christian Jorgensen, even though, as Miss Jorgensen puts it, it could be as common as a nose job. It takes a great deal of self-realization and courage to know oneself so well as to decide to turn one's majority self into the body it represents of that, if that body happens to be the opposite from that which you wear about. Fashion designers, it must be realized, are in business to make money. There's nothing wrong with that. And the women who are dupes enough to blindly follow the latest trends, whether flattering or not, desire to have their money taken. I see nothing wrong with trying to make a buck on whatever legal means they can find. And most women have made it very obvious that they're far more concerned with what is stylish than with what looks best. There used to be a slogan, popular with the old patent medicine salesman, whose nostrum uh, were good for so many ailments that if you got rid of one, there was sure to be a symptom present of another malady that would the wonder elixir could cure. The saying went, you can't make money off a well patient, keep him sick. This very policy applies to the fashion industry in the sense that you can't sell clothes to a woman who has a closet full. And how do you make a girl, uh, how do you get a girl to give up her favorite garments? Tell her to, they make her look ugly which is precisely what they are led to feel if you wear outdated styles. Just as the hypochondriac must be told he is sick, the woman who has something lacking in her life must blame her unhappiness on something other than her own inadequacies. So fashion and current clothing styles become both her rejection device, I haven't got a thing to wear, and her salvation. This type of woman who is stylishly dressed has bought for herself a form of security that will give her confidence without the need for beauty, brains, talent, ability, or actual respect from others. Be glad such multitudes of women exist, as they make your role as a witch that much easier. However, fanatical in their up-to-date appearance the fashion followers are, they have never learned that you can't fight nature, and there are certain standards of female beauty that transcend all clothing style changes. In order to practice magic, you must follow natural law, not violate it. Certain curves are conductive to consistency in the appearance of a woman, any woman. Whatever violates these forms reduces the feminine imagery that a woman should maintain if she is to succeed in enchantments. For example, a woman was not designed to look straight up and down, yet many styles foster this appearance and designers champion it. The so-called bulges that a woman shuns in herself are the feminine principle in a curvilinear form. Straight or concave lines are out for a witch's wardrobe, unless you want to appeal to a man whose majority self is that of a woman and doesn't know it. There are basically three fashion patterns, the straight, concave, and naturally feminine convex configurations. The first pattern dresses in an angular garment, which do not emphasize but decrease the curved dimensions synonymous with women. There is a hint that curves might not uh, might be there, but also an apprehension that they might not be. The girl seems to say, maybe yes, maybe no. This is an ideal form to utilize if you are a tree trunk, straight in the torso, but it would be more effective if you were to take a tip from the old-fashioned bustle and pad your hips out a bit so you can project a convex image. The concave pattern is the complete opposite of the ideal shape, though most of my readers will find her the most compatible to their vision. 
Naturally, you'll find her most attractive from a woman's point of view because she is antithetical to your own apparent selves. She looks like a boy with long hair, and her clothes would most likely have been designed by a man who likes boys, or a woman who represented femininity in women. Every extremity of her outfit is like a barb, totally opposite to the tactile dimensions for which you should strive. It is as if she is saying, don't touch me. The human brain responds to what the eyes see, regardless of what the mouth says, and the collective unconscious tells us this is not a woman. It also tells us that there is something antagonistic to sexual acceptance, much as the thorns on a pretty rose tell us we'd best be careful not to grab it. Straight lines, angles of all kinds, zigzag lightning bolt patterns, sawtooth designs, all masculine dimensions and concepts, will rob you of your femininity. They should not be employed unless the man you are bewitching is of extremely submissive nature. The reason prison matrons, deadly female super spies, and science fiction heroines always appeal so strongly to latent homosexuals is because the formidable take-no-crap-from-any-man attitude these ladies project is reinforced by the severely cut tunics, studded leather, and one-piece tantalum commando suits with behavioral control units in each breastplate. A girl dressed in the latest pattern may not appeal to you, and shouldn't, unless you are a self-aware butch, lesbian, or a man. She's a series of curves, or better yet, circles. Circles. Circles everywhere, all corresponding to each other. Circles for the breasts, shoulders, thighs, calves, arms, abdomen, even the area of the throat. Circles within circles. The same circles every artist and cartoonist learns are the foundation of the picture of a woman. And the fashion designers actually think they can come up with an act to follow this one? That is the reason why the convex configuration will always win out. Fashion and style be damned unless standards of beauty become so inverted and warped that a woman woman is no longer considered desirable but ugly and get out of my way you bastard becomes the new non-mating call of the woman for the future. I hardly think this will happen, though, for so long as there are real witches abroad and enough underground women who take delight in being women, the old rules of the game will apply, and the convex type will always win. She has in her curved dimensions a tactile quality that tells a man's vision, hold me, stroke me, squeeze me, feel me, touch me, put your arms around me, in short, try me out for size. In order for anything to be tactile, it must be pleasing to the touch, but first it must invite you to touch it. How does it do that? By conforming in its surfaces to the insides of your hands. After all, you feel with your fingers, and the more surface of your fingers that can be accommodated at one time, the more inclined you are to touch something. If a sur surface is of a nature that looks as though your whole hand would fit just right on it, Chances are good, unless there's a do-not-touch sign next to it, you will. Even if there's a sign prohibiting you from feeling that tactile object, if it's compelling enough, you'll touch it anyway. Just go to any museum or art gallery and you'll see plenty of evidence of what I'm saying. Convex lines create the tactile impression of such an object, except, of course, being another woman, your inhibitions, if nothing else, will forbid such a response. You see another woman as something too familiar to yourself, too much like what you carry around with you in the sculpted body of your own. You can feel yourself anytime you want, and probably do. Why would you want to feel another tactile piece of sculpture so similar to yourself? A man, though, 
That would be different. Angles, straight lines, round but straight, tactile but straight. Surely, you like to feel those convex, hand-filling art objects previously mentioned, but not the object of art that is more familiar to you than any other, your own body. That's why you don't like the final pattern, because you too respond to the law of the forbidden, and the grass is indeed always greener on the other side of the fence. But let us hope that you can now understand why a heterosexual male with a functioning sense of touch would respond to the visual stimulus provided by it. Surely the grand award for fashion designers in the world of witchery must go to Mr. Frederick of Fredericks of Hollywood. The enduring styles pervaded by this chain of shops are the only holdouts in the world of fashion. Without any periodic style changes of a drastic nature, Fredericks has proven beyond a doubt that money can be made in women's wear, selling clothes that make women look sexually appealing. Despite the fact that many women, Fredericks has become somewhat of a joke. The joke is on them, for it is just such women who are the butt of the biggest joke in the realm of clothing. While some of Frederick's fabrics and colors are decidedly garish, the proper lines are always, almost always present, almost blatantly antagonistic to any attempts at defeminization. Frederick's also features such trifles as hip and leg pads, falsies in varying degrees of ebullience, extra high heels, extra long falls, and other goodies guaranteed to reserve Mr. Frederick a place before the firing squad should female liberationists ever take over. While Frederick's sells a certain amount of so-called stylish garments, it is readily apparent that these are simply a concession to women who think they're buying something sexy if they can't if they carry it out of a Frederick's shop, yet don't want to violate any clothing taboos. It is for this reason that pantyhose, shapeless dresses, and most of the other accoutrements of desexualization can be found sandwiched in between the blow-up bras, spike heels, and tight sheath dresses. Women hating men and man hating women comprise the largest part of the fashion industry. Be thankful to them for eliminating would-be rivals who allow themselves to be duped. That was a lot. My goodness. All right. Women's fashion. There was a lot of uh, conjecture made about homosexual men and women and transsexuals and transvestites. I cannot speak to that. I would be very interested in hearing from any of the above if they think that they are treated justly by the comments therein. Uh... I can only speak to my own life experience, and for what he's speaking to, it all makes perfect sense to me. But one size does not fit all, as he also says in this. So <laughs> I'd be interested to hear what uh, all of you have to say about that. All right, let's see here. The desires, yes, not the telephone. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, let us, uh, yeah, we're just over an hour. We got some more time. Think about who your favorite cartoon cuties are. I'll give you mine afterward. Hi, El Show de la Baki. I don't know if I said that right. Cartoon cuties. 
Regardless of the attempts made by the fashion industry to foist questionable styles on women, there will always be certain standards for sexiness that prevail. No matter how chunky shoes get or how shapeless dresses become, the basic wardrobe of the witch will remain the same. I find it amazing that women who live for the attention they receive from men and yet look to the pages of women's magazines for the styles to employ in their bewitchments. If a witch is wise, she will refer to men's magazines for her pointers and style. She won't have to buy many such magazines, though, as repetition will set in an early stage. When you look at a man's magazine to see what the perennial witch is wearing, don't study the big centerfold or the slick photo essays. Chances are good you'll only see bikinis, g-strings, or no clothes at all. Instead, turn to the cartoons. Yes, the cartoons, especially the ones toward the back of the magazine. The reason for this is because the cartoons contain girls involved in everyday situations for the most part, and as such, they are clothed. But how are they clothed? Invariably, they will be attired in the standard witch outfit, and I don't mean a black cape and a pointy hat. They'll be wearing a rather skimpy dress, which looks about two sizes too small and so thin that the lines of the body and sometimes the undergarments are visible. The figure will always be full-blown, a mass of circles, so to speak. The face will always be pert, exotic, or provocative. The shoes will be as close as the cartoonist can get to an accurate rendition of a spiked heel, and if the girl is not bare-legged, she will be wearing stockings with visible tops and garters. It seems that these masters of exaggeration, the cartoonist, knows what we will always catch the eye. They may change the cut of a man's suit from year to year, but a curvy cutie's basic appearance? Never. There are many periodicals devoted solely to the cartoon art. Within the magical confines of their covers, you will find the creations of a thousand Frankensteins, all custom-made, not dependent on the right model posing for the right photographer with her misguided idea of what to wear for her photo session, nor will you find any women in the cartoons who are any less pretty than the artist is capable of drawing. It is true, many girly magazines feature photos of models wearing some of the accoutrements of the witch, but seldom will perfection be attained. This is due largely to the fact that the photographer often tries to be up-to-date more than the cartoonist, and he is not limited to a particular style of drawing to which, once perfected, is most easily adhered. The photographer can do much, but he is still limited to the whims of his model, insofar as he himself doesn't want to impose styles of dress which might brand him as some kind of nut. When a cartoonist draws his women, however, he is the Pygmalion, the creator, and no embarrassment need enter his mind nor inhibit, uh, inhibition stifle his art. Therefore, he creates the eternal witch, the perennial courtesan, the all-pervading strumpet, in a manner that his artistic unconscious tells him is the way a real woman should look. Of course, the single word that exemplifies a cartoon is exaggeration. Let us take a very useful clue from this word in the pursuit of practical witchery. The secret of the appeal of the cartoon enchantress lies in overdevelopment. Her breasts are not simply large, they are immense. They are either distended globules threatening to burst the fabric which encases them, or dangerously outthrust projections. And the nipples! Not just a subtle termination of the breasts, but an outgrowth the size of a large ripe olive. Her hips are like motorcycle saddlebags. 
and her waist must be all of sixteen inches. Her buttocks resemble a pair of overinflated basketballs, and her features are those of a two-year-old baby. All in all, a monster if such a creature could actually exist. Fortunately, our minds are used to sorting out three dimensions, so such grotesqueries are unnecessary for a sexy appearance, as the girl in the cartoon exists in only two dimensions. She, therefore, must have a little bit more going for her to make up for that other one. What we are primarily concerned with here, though, is her style of dress. Proportions must vary, depending on the number of dimensions seen, in order that the final observations will appear standardized. Style is not in need of such optical manipulation, however, when rendered in a graphical manner. A tight dress is a tight dress, whether seen on paper or in person. Likewise, a garter is a garter, a high heel is a style of shoe, and a, a glimpse of panties is not a rose, and I'm sure Gertrude Stein, who had her own interests in both, would agree. The uniform of the sex-type witch will be seen in the clothing worn by the denizens of the single-panel cartoon, and in some cases, the comic strips. Don't count on the comic strips for a guide, though, as their creators pride themselves on maintaining fashion plate standards, especially in the last few years. Of course, Blondie's attire will probably never change much, nor will olive oils, and Orphan Annie is not to be trusted much either, witchery-wise. Adio, what is your favorite cartoony lady? I'm thinking like um, old school Betty Boop, <laughs> which is pretty silly, uh, or Jessica Rabbit. That's my era, man. <laughs> Jessica Rabbit is badass. She's the ultimate femme fatale, you know? Oh, and for those of you who don't know who Jessica Rabbit is, you should seriously see who framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> Not in a quality way, but it's pretty amazing. We like masculine or feminine aspects, but that doesn't mean the masculine type has to be trying or be biologically a male. Oh, are you referring to the... I can't tell if I'm like late or if you guys are late in your responses um you must be referring to my earlier comment about um homosexuals or trans people i think okay uh the times have definitely dated that i once knew a man who was homosexual and when i asked about the topic he wouldn't want to change a thing but remain feminine as a man you like very feminine men and women, but also like the androgynous people. I think now we have disconnected our interests from our genitalia more. I got to tell you, ooh, April O'Neil. All right. All right, well, to each their own. <laughs> the, the yellow parka jacket and pants don't really do it for me. <laughs> you know, as much as I love me some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I do, she never really uh, rubbed me the right way. <laughs> uh, let's see. Not a cartoon, but oddly enough, Iron Betty. Interesting. Okay. Uh, let's do a little stockings versus pantyhose next. Stockings versus pantyhose. Throw away your pantyhose and forget about them. They are a curse perpetuated on women 
by people who would rather you weren't women. Pantyhose are nothing more than cloth chastity belts that assure the wearer that nobody's going to see anything they ain't supposed to. There goes 20 points for the law of the forbidden right down the drain. The man who oogles a girl wearing pantyhose knows that he can only see so much, nothing more. There is never the hope that she might forget the hem of her skirt just long enough to give a flash of bare thigh. Never worry about those ugly gaps where your thigh bulges, uh, between your girdle and stocking. Cackle the ads, brainwashing women into sensual self-deceit. No more unsightly hardware ruining the trim lines of today's styles. Coo the harbingers of defeminization. Banishes all snaps, clips, and straps, so you'll look as smooth as can be, prattle the merchants of misplaced mannishness. Pantyhose are nothing new. Jackie's leotard, a 19th century circus aerialist, took great, uh, looked great in them. He even had some with tops sewn on. In fact, he gave his name to the garment worn by ballet artists and trapeze performers. And do you know why leotards, tights, and pre-pantyhose were worn? Because little else was, and in the interest of propriety, the bare flesh had to be covered. That was 75 years ago, and tights were worn as a specialized type of garment by both men and women, who after the performance was over, got into their respective boy and girl clothes. I'm not going to use much space in a tirade about the desexualization of the American male and the defeminization of the American woman. Mo many competent researchers, psychologists, sociologists, and sexologists have observed the phenomenon. The last ones to notice they are being duped are always the people, however. So instead of trying to change things, I'll just say that the field is wide open for a witch who follows my formulas. Thanks to those wonderful folks with their pantyhose and starvation diets and chrome sequin jumpsuits and clubfoot shoes who have eliminated most of the competition. Pantyhose emphatically let a man know he can't have access to a woman's sexual organs. Although the story goes that one gentleman was energetically making love to his lady friend and noticed that with each new thrust, she reacted by violently curling her toes. After calling her attention to her unique aberration, the man was informed that she had forgotten to remove her pantyhose. The story is not far from the truth, as some women now wear their nylon security skins under pantsuits and shorts and even to bed in a manner not unlike the old farmers who used to sew their woolen underwear on after harvest and remove it after the first spring thaw. Get rid of those pantyhose. Only the most desperate of men will condone them. Wear nylons with tops at least two inches wide held by a garter belt or girdle, depending on how much you should show your lascivious flab. If you are attempting to bewitch a four to nine o'clock male, Black or darker shade nylons are just the thing, held up by a black garter belt or longish panty girdle that will tend to make your thighs look firm, but still let a little bare flesh peek through. If you are working on men in the 10 to 3 o'clock range, wear beige, tan, and cinnamon tone nylons suspended by a white or pink garter belt or fairly short girdle that will allow plenty of thigh to balloon out. If your garter straps are a little frayed, so much the better. He'll think he's really seeing something he shouldn't. A safety pin repair job on a garter strap is a real turn-on, too. Another trick to remember is the run in the stocking. Four to nine o'clocks won't like it much, but ten to threes will find a run in the nylon very appealing, providing it's not on their own wife. 
Of course, you can't wear skirts 8 inches above your knees if you're going to wear nylons that stop 7 inches above your knees, and you shouldn't wear the type of nylons that come all the way up to your crotch, as you will be defeating the whole purpose in wearing them. If your stockings end midway up your thigh, you have a lot of room to play around with in using the Law of the Forbidden. If your hem is 2 or 3 inches above the knee, you can control the amount of leg you display with amazing finesse. If necessary, you can be prim and proper with no indication of what lies beyond the hem of your skirt as it is tucked neatly under your legs which are closed together. You can cross your legs, allowing the tiniest glimpse of bare thigh to peek out over the tops of your stockings. Or you can arrange a brazen display of thigh which will guarantee the wrath of every other woman present, especially those wearing skirts with much shorter than yours. You can use the technique of not knowing anything is wrong while one small area of your thigh is accidentally exposed in a manner that is not a question of how much is revealed, but rather how far up. Stockings, garters, and skirts with enough leeway in length give you a very magical tool to work with in bewitching through the law of the forbidden. I've proven the validity of my formulas many times over by sending my witches into the field, where they are men who pay lip service to all the latest fashions, deny the principles I set forth, yet still salivate when the bell rings, when they are actually confronted by a girl who employs these techniques. Always remember that a good old-fashioned pair of nylons will be the best friend a witch ever had. I gotta tell you, man, these, these glasses, I just had like one eye dilated today. They're checking my retina and stuff. I'm struggling here. <laughs> I'm really struggling. I can do another half hour though. High heel is next. Um, I love me some stockings with like seeing the clip. You, you give me that, that, that two inch border with a clip and I get a peek the clip. I take that over a spread eagle any day i think that is incredibly sexy and anything with that line going up the calf curving around the calf up to the thigh and my imagination going how fucking far does it go ah it's so good oh i just love it love it i think my um my fashion sense ends um it's, it's, it's got to end like early 50s because that's where, you know, like like World War II era, that those 30s, that's like my bread and butter. Oh, fuck, I love that. Where women were just incredibly sexy, but they were at the beginnings of, of coming out as uh, independent from the men who controlled them um, or who thought controlled them, where women really started coming out as the true witchy individuals that they were oh god and the god damn the clothing was great just love it mm, 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 mm. all right i'll stop that's gross sorry to be a creep there people yeah and that's the other thing i think i think most people would think that um if there's blemishes in the skin that it's like an abject turn off but if I get to see the perfection of a stocking end and a little bit of that milky white flesh and then, I mean, just in the case of like a white lady and then some blemishes or something, I don't mind. 
it's not disgusting to me. You show me like a, um, uh, a, a woman's belly, for example, with, um, uh, uh, why, what, why am I going blank on the word? Um, with some, uh, uh, marks on it, stretch marks. That was weird. I couldn't think of that. Um, and I see a warrior. I see a woman who has been through battle, who has a body that she has earned. I, I don't find that ugly. I find that wildly attractive. I think that's great. I think, and, and it doesn't even have to be on your belly. I mean, if, you know, you, you were a, a little bit thicker of a gal and you have a little bit of uh, uh, marks, you know, like stre stretch marks on your thigh or something, I don't have a problem with that. That doesn't turn me off. And I think people who are too concerned about that are focusing on the leaf instead of really appreciating the forest. You know what I mean? When it comes to an individual, you have to sort of, you know, it's okay to focus on little things that turn you on about them, but you have to take it as a whole too. You know, you have to appreciate the entirety of the package and the effort that's put into it. And the energy that they're putting out that you're supposed to be picking up on, you know, mating signals, perhaps. And if you're just focused on one tiny little thing, like, like a, a pimple, uh, you've, you don't deserve the signals that are being sent out, you know, and you will go home lonely because of it. All right, let's talk about some high heels. Which immediately made me start thinking of Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> and now I want to watch it again. <laughs> because let's be honest, if, if there has ever been a show that sexualized transvestites, that is the one. But there is no greater show that any straight, like typical straight man would watch that contained a transsexual that outside of the context of the film, they would probably, you know, be all tough masculine guys. Like, oh, fuck that. I'd beat him up. But I defy any straight man to be in Brad's position in Rocky Horror Picture Show and not let Frankenfurter go down on you. Come on. <laughs> but it's not all bad, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. It's not all bad. The high heel. Another flagrant example of hypocrisy generated by fashion changes is right today, wrong tomorrow paradox of the high-heeled shoe. In the gay 90s, women wore high-buttoned shoes and boots that came halfway up to the leg. As the 20th century gave women the right to vote, it also took away their heavy leather footwear and gave them their French heel, Cuban heel, wedgie, platform pump, and spring a later, all higher, moderately high-heeled shoes. A sort of obsolescence manifested itself through the respective periods of acceptance for all of the type of shoes I just mentioned. Like the undergarment situation, what was rationalized as comfortable one year was considered painful and unhealthy the next. When women wore the French heel after the First World War, it was considered the height of sexiness with its small wine glass stem type heel. It was also considered a vast relief from the cumbersome boots of the earlier era with their fat heels that lacked grace. Pretty soon, only old ladies were wearing shoes with chunky heels. The slender high heel was here to stay. 
a few years later, when heels had grown even higher and thicker, heavier shoe had a short popularity. Largely inspired by the Latin lover image and the immense popularity of the tango, rumba, and other dances, the Cuban heel of the early 30s slimmed itself out, however, and outside of novelty shoes like the wedgie, by 1940, every woman who had any style was wearing high heels. The old cry, emancipation, went up, and great thanks were given by countless women that the graceful, feminine, lightweight shoe had arrived. Reminiscence of Grandmother's Day, when high-buttoned shoes with low heels were the rage, made every woman grateful that she didn't have to wear such monstrosities. Thick, chunky heels were worn by old women and for orthopedic purposes, and boots were for horseback riding. This basic ideal continued for many years, and the women's legs never looked so good, until it was decided they looked too good by the woman-haters and the ugly-uglies. So back to the drawing board. Trousers for women had already gained unanimous <clears throat> acceptance with pedal pushers, toreador pants, capris, etc. running their courses. All that was needed to get rid of the high heel was to start by shortening it so that its wearer appeared to be standing in soft mud. Women blindly accepted the new one and one-and-a-half-inch heel as sensible and rationalized it by telling of its comfort in all-day standing sessions. Then came the boots, and though some of the first ones had spiked heels, they soon disappeared in favor of lower and thicker heels. Within a short time, the full circle had come about with women wearing low-heeled boots, which rose above their knees in many cases. Now the fashion slaves were cheering a new age of comfort, as they sipped their scotch and waters in their tight gay 90s boots and full-length drawers, pantyhose. They gave few eulogies for their horrible, uncomfortable spiked heels that a few decades earlier had been hailed as freedom from the heavy, sweaty, binding, unhealthy, confining, cumbersome footwear of the gay 90s, which only bred germs, raised bunions, and did nothing for a girl's legs. Now, as some of you read this while wearing your Lil Abner gunboats, you wonder how your mom could possibly have walked in those awful spiked heels. It was easy witches, it was easy. How sad it is that women have never been taught the reasons for the appeal of the high-heeled shoes. By high-heeled, I mean the three-inch spike, not the two-inch and a half or one-inch high heel, nor do I mean the chunky heel, however high, which resembles nothing so much as a handle from a forty-five automatic pistol. Despite recent propaganda to the contrary, high heels are not extinct. Pick up any men's magazine and glance at the cartoons of sexy girls, and you'll find the high heel is every bit as fashionable as it always was. Cartoons are still exaggerations of reality, and the competent witch must be constantly aware of the importance of properly employed exaggeration. In the casting of spells, exaggeration of the chosen imagery is necessary for the emotions to become worked up to their highest pitch. Sexual fetishes are nothing more than exaggerations of what would be considered normalcy. For this reason, it is easy to pass the whole subject of high heels off as simple device for fetishistic activity. Even if this were the case, it would be assumed that high heels should be a universal article of clothing, basing its popularity on such a commonly encountered fetish. Why, however, is a high heel so prevalent as a sex symbol synonymous with femininity? The reasons are many. First, the three-inch spiked heel forms a distinct S curve, from the top of the heel to the point where the spike touches the ground. This S curve is a traditional curve of beauty, 
the serpentine curve of mystery, the epitome of fluidic, feminine contour. No other style of footwear is as flagrant in the portrayal of this emotionally pleasing configuration. Now, something very magical happens when the foot is placed within the high-heeled shoes and the wearer stands up. The back of the calf is thrown out in an exaggeration of its normal plane, creating another S curve directly above the one formed by the shoe. Still, another exaggeration is formed above the knee, where we find the buttocks thrown out along with the hips and thighs and forming a third S. This one starting where the waist nips in, bulging out for hips and buttocks and retreating as the knee is approached. One might call this a very unholy trinity, as it is sure to be the basis for much temptation. One such parabolic curve is deadly enough as a device employed towards positive attraction, but when three such S-curves are used, one on top of the other, the onslaught is too much to possibly be ignored. No one is immune to these geometries when confronted by them, whether it be seen in the neck of a swan as it glides across the lake, or in the elegance of a Landau bar fastened to the rear of a vehicle's passenger compartment, or in the mysterious compelling beauty of the structure of the roller coaster, the S-curve will always compel attention. So much for the effect of the high heel when the wearer is in a standing position. When the really devastating effect of the high heel comes is when the wearer begins to walk. It is virtually impossible to walk in high heels without the hips and pelvis reacting in an exaggerated manner. Any girl who has ever tried to walk in high heels without shaking her behind should know that the result effect is ludicrous as to defy description. The fact that the walk has become unnatural only applies when compared to the type of walk produced without high heels. Once the high heels are placed on the feet, any attempt to walk without the posterior swaying becomes unnatural. In short, one doesn't even have to try to walk in a sexy manner while wearing high heels. It comes naturally. The high heel is always in style, at least insofar as the emotional appeal it generates. As a device for separating the sexes, it seems to be the only article of clothing worn by women that men have not been able to incorporate into their wardrobes. It is true that men's shoes have been fashioned in the semi-high heel style, but with a thick heel of the type women used to wear when Cuban heels were in vogue. It is highly unlikely that men will ever take up three-inch spike heels, so long as such footwear is restricted to women. The woman who is holed out for her exclusiveness in being a woman will always have such a badge of office at her disposal. No matter how extreme the juxtaposition between men and women grows fashion-wise, if a man wishes to wear women's high heels, he will have to own up to his transvestite tendencies, which in itself would be a refreshing display of honesty. Men may dress as women to all intents and purposes, so long as the clothes they wear are purchased in men's shops. This gets the feminized male off the hook and eliminates the stigma accompanied in the wearing of women's clothes. So long as a man can go into a fashionable men's shop and purchase an ensemble he saw in the latest Playboy or Esquire, he needn't fear anyone referring to him as a drag queen. Should he find the wearing of women's high heels appealing, however, he has no choice but to receive the questioning glances of all who see him, to say the least. One thing must be borne in mind, and that is that anything which looks freakish can negate the otherwise potent force which exaggeration provides. A good example of this is the style of high heels seen in journals and cartoons catering to purely fetishistic needs. Often these grotesque styles 
feature heels five inches or higher, some actually rising to the ludicrous height of nine or ten inches. These specifically made shoes are devoid of the S-curve, and in order to allow the wearer to stand, let alone walk, it is necessary to build up the soles so that the shoe resembles a corrective orthopedic device rather than an article of footwear. The most foolproof type of high heel for the witch to wear is the classic three-inch pump in whatever material of color or color is best suited to the occasion. Variations include the open-toed sling pump, a slightly more naughty and yielding image with just a hint at sleaziness. Then, of course, there is the backless spring-o-lator, or, as it is used to be called, the mule. Only the most daring, cheap, and loose women wear this type of heel, or so the hostile females would claim. It is true that the spring elator's very design suggests a shoe intended to be worn while lying down rather than walking. The element of the high heel is definitely emphasized while the shoe itself is minimized, thereby flaunting the premise that it is the effect which counts, not the utilitarian aspect. It is for this reason the spring elator must be considered the most self-conscious of the family of high heels. This, then, is why only the most thick-skinned of witches can feel comfortable wearing such a style shoe. Spring-o-lator. I find it charming that little girls who have not yet learned to deny their gender take great delight in wearing their mommy's high heels, even though mommy never wears them anymore herself. So strong is this compulsion in these tiny witches that one wise toy manufacturer has produced a dress-up shoe for little girls, which is a replica of the out-of-date spring later and comes complete with fancy silver clips and a red jewel. And don't forget that all big lady dolls, such as Barbie, have a selection of high-heeled shoes from which our little enchantresses can choose to match any outfit in the doll's wardrobe, whereas the child-type dolls come with flat shoes. To the aspiring witches who try to stay on the good side of my of me by saying they'd just love to wear high heels, but can't because it hurts their feet, I have a ready answer. I say it's easy. In fact, it's child's play. Little boys seem likewise fascinated with high heels, most likely because they know it's an article of clothing that they're not allowed to wear and is reserved for girls. The rule every witch should remember concerning high heels is, it is not what is fashionable, but what is sensibly attractive that counts, and the high heel cannot be other than attractive, as it represents the natural line of beauty combined with the pelvic movement, which is the very dance of life. Let the fashion industry argue until they're blue in the face. People may not know what they like when they see it, but they're sure to respond to it. And after all, in witchery, that's what counts. Whew. That's a lot about heels. <laughs> Lots of heel talk. I had to stop because I, I constantly thought I was saying it wrong. Springolator. Like I had to do a double take because it, it sounds ridiculous. I've never even heard of it. But then I'm a dude and I don't wear heels. So what do you know? Oh, the girl from Cool World. That's a good one in Mashworth. I dig that. All right, let's see what you guys got here. Yeah, man. <clears throat> All right. Well, uh, let me see if I can go through this next one before time runs out here. Yeah, I got this. So the next one, probably the best place to end in any conversation, is titled, On Prostitutes and Pentagrams. 
I'm curious. We got 15 minutes. Let's do it. On prostitutes and pentagrams. Some of the best witches are prostitutes. It's their job to attract men. They not only learn the little quirks that other women never see in men, but they must be able to dress, act, and think outside their natural role. Unfortunately, many present-day prostitutes have abandoned their uniforms and gone the way of fashion, and there is nothing so dismal as a stylish prostitute. Of course, the girls who wear the pantyhose, bell-bottoms, and combat shoes can't understand why they aren't spoken for as much as their high-heeled, stocking-clad, tight-skirted sisters, and you can be sure the gals who know what most men prefer are not about to tell them. The uniform of the prostitute is virtually little different than the uniform of the complete witch. Dresses should be tight enough, if straight, to allow the lines of undergarments to be faintly perceptible through the material. Dresses with full skirts should be nipped in at the waist as much as possible with a belt. Straight dresses may also be worn with a wide belt, unless you are particularly thin. The belt should never be lighter than the basic color of the dress, and generally should be much darker. Avoid the empire line dresses, despite your passions for them. They violate your true waistline, if you have one, and should only be worn by those who are fat in the midriff. All hemlines should be no more than four, no less than one inch above the knee. Belts should also be worn with skirts and blouses or skirts and sweaters. The best neckline is always a V, but unobtrusive variations may be worn. Avoid huge boat necks. They break up your curvilinear symmetry and make you look like a lighthouse. If you can't wear heels, then wear classic flats or sandals. Avoid novelty shoes unless your feet are so misshapen you want to detract from them by drawing attention to the strangeness of the shoe. Choose uniform patterns or solid colors. More to come on colors. Suits are fine if they're figure revealing, nipped in at the waist and have a straight skirt. Pleasant blouses are a standard. Uh, peasant blouses are a standard. Flowered prints are always good as they are polka dots, checks, stripes, etc. Avoid camouflage prints unless your figure is so bad it needs them. This applies to wild psychedelic prints. These patterns were designed by way of acid tripping and place the importance on the fabric of the dress rather than what's inside. Wear a bra unless your garment is thin enough that it's apparent you're not. Otherwise, your nipples won't be seen and what's the point in going braless if they don't show? You either got to show some breast or else some nipple. A bulky sweater with no bra shows neither. If you are one of the big busted, kindly disregard what I said. Wear a slip, or a half slip if you wish, but keep it plain and simple. No layers or ruffles to get in the way when you sit down so your legs will be obscured. Panties should be plain white or pink, or if you must wear branded new ones during an enchantment, a color called eggshell is good as it looks a bit dingy. If you are afford 10 o'clock, black if you are on the top end of the synthesizer between 10 or 4 o'clock. Undies should look as though you didn't plan on anyone seeing them, then they look more forbidden. If you wear stage undies with all kinds of embroidery, lace, fringe, etc., it appears that you give everybody a show, and that's all that can be hoped for, a show. You want to give the impression that you are for real, not an entertainer, and nothing turns a man on more than to think he's seeing something you hadn't planned on him seeing. Get out the old panties you wouldn't want to get in an accident wearing, and you can't go wrong. 
Sometimes, other backstabbing women can inadvertently do you a big favor simply because you're laboring under the delusions and follies that have been supplied by sex haters in general and women haters in particular. An amusing example of such an occurrence is the real-life Cinderella story which follows. It all happened in a large insurance firm in San Francisco. A new girl had been hired in an office staffed by several women and two eligible men. She was unmarried, with a pretty face, and was just overweight enough to enhance her basically good figure. One day, shortly after joining the firm, she was struggling to retrieve a folder which had fallen behind a film filing cabinet, and in the process of her unexpected gymnastics, revealed a great deal more than the other woman felt was proper. It was awful, and the nasty-minded men naturally got a big kick out of it. It wasn't so much the exposure, for shirt skirts has been in for a, quite a while. The other women couldn't even complain about the fact that the newcomer was wearing regular stockings instead of pantyhose, though they would have liked to. The charge finally leveled at the violator of office tranquility was predicated upon hygiene and supplied by the fact that Miss X was wearing a panty girdle that was rather soiled in a crucial area. The fluorescent office lights had illuminated her like a filming for a living girdle TV commercial. By the next day, the whispering campaign was in full swing and sounded more like an actualization of a soap commercial. Did you see the girdle she was wearing? You should have seen the girl's girdle. How disgusting. It'll be her underwear stands, I bet her underwear stands up by itself. And other colorful praises were loudly sung by all the harpies present. Before long, word had gotten round to other offices in the building and interest started building concerning this gal in the next office with her dirty underwear. Slowly, surreptitiously, and slyly, men started developing excuses to talk to the girl, men who didn't even work in the same office. In fact, the girl was later hired by the regional manager of another firm in the same building and placed into a new branch office on a nearby suburb as a receptionist. Her salary was almost doubled and, as of writing this, she is still holding off her boss's proposals of marriage, though she says she'll soon give in. The moral of the story is this. Never underestimate the power of a dirty girdle. Worn clothing is always more sexy than fresh, New clothing, whether in blue denims, Levi's, or cocktail dresses. This doesn't mean scroungy and dirty, but broken-in clothes. I've known men who were driven crazy by a soiled bra strap revealing through a sleeve opening. Say I'm daft if you will, but these are the tricks, and potent tricks they are. Don't worry about it if your panties get a little, panties get a little damp. The moister they are, the better men like it. A very famous movie sex symbol of my acquaintance used to allow herself to dribble enough to get a small wet spot on the back of her skirt, implying to all the stupid men who saw her that she was so excited she couldn't control herself. Maybe she was. At any rate, it certainly achieved the desired reaction. Other sneaky tricks that are decided turn-ons to many men are unknown tears or rips in skirt seams that will reveal a glimpse of underwear. A well-trained zipper can also do wonders. When a nice old lady calls you aside and tells you you're unzipped and back, just blush a little more. Thank her while frantically zipping up and wait a few minutes till she's gone. Then pull the zipper back down again, hoping you don't run into her again. If you must wear pants, the same tricks of accidental rips and errant zippers can apply. Especially effective is an opening seam in the upper inside thigh or anywhere along the crotch seam up to the waistband and back. 
When wearing sleeveless tops, consider not only the opportunities for a peep show through an extra-wide arm opening, but also the role your armpit can play in visual enhancement. Uh, yeah, Christian, I'm not a big uh, soiled panty guy either, if I'm being honest. So, uh, clearly, that is one fetish that is mentioned earlier in the book that fit a certain type. I happen not to be that type. But, I don't kink shame, so if you're into it, do your thing, man. Do your thing. <laughs> or lady. Uh, that's it, everyone. I'm out of tea. We're at the two-hour mark. It's been an absolute pleasure reading this with you. I apologize for all of my stumbles and misspeakings and mispronunciations. But uh, I'm doing my best. And I'm doing it for fun. And it's free. So stop your bitching. <laughs> That's what it comes down to, I suppose. Um, I think we got two more of these. And then we're done. And then I'm forced to think, what am I going to read next? What satanic literature am I going to read next? So I may reach out to the maestro and see if he'd be okay with that, uh, me reading his. Or I could dive into Midas Right. I mean, I could do some stuff with Midas Right. I don't know. What do you guys think? After the Satanic Witch, what should be next? Or should there be a next? Are you just like, we're done, man. Stop. Just, just stop. <laughs> Can't take it anymore. I appreciate either way. Okay, so that being said, uh, again, this and all other version, uh, all other parts of the Satanic Witch reading are on the YouTube channel. If you want this in audio form only, it is available on the website. I'm going to get this going probably in the morning. Um, and then, uh, yeah, let me know what you think. If you appreciate what you're seeing and what you're hearing, if you like this show, hit the subscribe button on the YouTube channel, click the like on the video and share it. And if you get this by podcast, give me a rating. Like, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe five stars or something on whatever podcast that you get it on. Uh, because it does actually help. And it helps it serve to others who may be interested also. Thank you all so much for your time and attention. I genuinely appreciate it. And to all of you in the live chat, you guys fucking rock. Thank you so much for your interaction. Because that makes it fun for me. Until next time, everyone. Hail Satan.